Today on Security Science, managing third-party code risk. Hello, and thanks for joining us today as we discuss the surprisingly, well, at least to me, challenges with managing risk in software code, and particularly the third-party code in things like open-source software libraries, GitHub, all that good stuff. So I have almost zero experience with this. So explaining this highly complex landscape to me today is Kenneth Security's very own Sultan of Security, Jerry Gamblin. How's it going, Jerry? It's going well, Dan. It's, it's not that hard to understand. And we'll walk through this and, and get everybody kind of up to speed on, on what third party code risk looks like and why it should be, be an issue for everyone. Awesome. Well, I want to just mention this. So I will link specifically to this and hopefully link to it in any social promotion. But Jerry shared this always pertinent XKCD uh, little cartoon image on software dependencies. And it's just the best. So anyway, it's XKCD.com slash 2347 if you want to check it out right now. So I encourage you go look at it. And it kind of summarizes this entire topic. Um, Anyway, so jumping in, uh, I just thought it would be apt to start with uh, the famous Mark Andreessen quote from 2011, right? He wrote this whole Wall Street Journal byline on it, but it was that software is eating the world. And it's been almost 10 years um, since he said that. And I think everyone will say that's it's pretty true. Uh, it seems what the rise of Facebook, all the social media platforms, uh, influencing elections, all that fun stuff. Um it seems software and code in particular has just expanded to be the primary export and develop area of development for the U.S. and uh, the greater world. So, Jerry, what are some of the challenges that have uh, created this whole situation in the last 10 years? I think what Mark missed there or what he implied was that software that that individual companies wrote would be the would, would take over the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um in reality, that that isn't what's happening in most organizations today or anybody who's writing code. One of my favorite examples of this is that a super popular JSON formatter in Rails has over 30,000 lines of code when you import the gem, right? So you import one gem to, to make sure that your, your JSON is validated and you bring in 30,000 lines of code that, that someone else has written to do that into your code base. You know, I think that people used to, to stay up with nightmares of like somebody hacking into their firewall. Mm-hmm. I, I think now that most CISOs and security people stay up and wondering what all their dependencies look like. I think we'll talk about an article and a report later that says that, you know, uh, the average developer supports 100 times more code than he did when Mark wrote that quote. And it's not code that they're writing. That's interesting. So you, you're referencing, um, and we'll have a link to the, all of these sources as well, but it was an Ars Technical article, um, and they were talking about a survey they did um, what the company was source graph. And so I think it was 51% of the respondents said that they were um, managing at least 100 times more code. Um, and I believe half of those guys even said 500 times more code than they did in 2010. So we will definitely link to that. And that's just a staggering number. And what you're saying, I think the point is that um, they're not writing necessarily all this code. This is a lot of stuff that's 
freely available, open source. Um, it's used to kind of cobble together a solution, right, over time. And people have to manage this. So could you just uh, back up a little bit and explain what's a dependency in software? A dependency is something the software needs to run. Uh, it's better to think of these as kind of like toolkits. If you go to, like, I think it's gems.ruby.com right now, you can like type in, it, it's their gem search engine. Gems are little add-ins that do that do certain things. You can say, I need something to validate a date, and you'll have a date validation gem or a JSON validation gem or, or a gem that can talk to AWS. And all of these gems have a ton of code that is hard to, for a company to audit before they put it in, right? Like you're just trying to go fast. Yeah. So I go and I grab this gem and I throw it in my software stack. And now I've inherited all the code that's written in there plus all the dependencies that that person used to build their gem, down, down, down. So that's how you go from something that should be super simple to write to being, you know, 20,000 lines of, of code. So it's, it's essentially the concept of not needing to recreate the wheel, right? You, you, can, you need to do accomplish X thing. Someone's likely already done that somewhere within the code um, language that you're looking at, and you should be able to pull that in theory for most things. So it's a, it's a tool to achieve a specific goal. It's a tool that you're paying nothing for and that becomes a key component of, of your company and, and how they operate, right? So we're talking about security here, but it's also just as, as you know, pertinent to mention performance and logging and stuff. So these might be slow and the problem might be like that XKCD article shows that the slowness is in something, you know, three layers down in your stack that somebody from Nebraska manages on their free time and and it's slowing down your your billion dollar company, but you know you don't know that software. So you hope that this person, after they get done farming or whatever they do in Nebraska, comes in and makes that update that you need so that your company can can perform. And then you also are, I guess, have to deal with some of the risks that could be inherent to some of that code that is three generations down <laughs> built on top of different pieces as well. I mean, there is a political aspect to it, but uh, earlier this year, somebody pulled down a bunch of very popular chefs' open source repos that, that they had owned, that they, they worked on it, and, and the chef company did a deal with the Department of Homeland Security or something, and they didn't like it. So they pulled down these these repos that had millions of pools, and, and everybody was using it to make chef work, and it broke a bunch of people right away. And, and that's something to think about when you use open source software, right? Like, if this disappeared tomorrow, what would you do? And that was a big kind of eye opener on what it means to use open source software in your environment that you might not have copy of a copy of our control over. Gotcha. Well, that same ours article also says that in modern development and particularly web development, right? Um, and it generally is amalgamations of different platforms, libraries and dependencies. And then the developers that source graph surveyed reported that they had um, increased the number by significant amount. How much would you say if you had to guesstimate most uh, platforms are built on, like most companies, how much do you think that their software is built on open source code or uh, library, things that weren't actually hand coded by the company's devs itself? Yeah, I think a good a good number is that most apps are 95% prodding code, right? Like, like, like on average that 
it 95% is, is background code gems that they brought in to make it run. That is crazy to me. And that's why I brought up the surprising in my intro because I had no idea. I mean, it makes sense when you really think about it, but 95%, that seems like a significantly high number overall. It is, but you want people to move fast. And when they move fast, they will take what's available for free and, and what's popular versus writing it themselves. And when open source software has a good support system and stuff written around it, it works fine. It's the edge cases where you're using a not popular gem that somebody sneaks a backdoor into that, that always ends up biting people. So everybody is going to use open source libraries. You just really have to, as a security professional or as a software development manager, like come up with some hard rules on like what makes a good open source package for your company, right? Does it look maintained? When was the last update, right? Like mm -hmm. if I'm writing software and I find a gem that does what I want it to do, 100% of what I want it to do, but it doesn't look like it's been updated in like 12 months, two years versus one that does 80% of what I need and is constantly updating, you should use the one that's that's still getting updates as, as it's probably better long-term for your company and may not be abandoned. That makes a ton of sense as well. But um, it seems like this has mostly risen over the course of the last 10 to 20 years. So I don't know if that's accurate. Like, have we seen a shift over time in use of kind of these open source libraries of things over the course of, you know, web development, for example? Oh, yeah. Open source libraries, uh, it's a different development world. I'm not a professional developer, but when I was in college and you took you know, introduction to programming or C plus, like you would include libraries that were built into the C C library. There was no go out and grab this library from this website. So everything was pretty well self-contained, but that's changed so much these days where it's go pull this library, right? Like you want to do machine learning, go get the TensorFlow library. And there's no way that you're going to write enough code to offset the code that you're using from TensorFlow, right? So yeah, yeah we're all kind of kind of part of this giant open source community and most people don't don't stop to think about it. Um, I would be I'd be remiss to, to do one of these podcasts and not talk a little bit about car hacking. But <laughs> it, next time you you get in your car, look at your infotainment center. Somewhere in there will be a license that shows all the open source software that that Tesla or Chrysler or Ford uses. And it's usually a big, long thing that you have to spread. You have to scroll through because all those companies did the same thing. Instead of going and writing their own software, they went and pulled off the shelf utilities. That's probably in a normal Linux distribution and use that in the car. Oh man, licensing. I didn't even think about that. That sounds like a nightmare. Just maintaining like <laughs> the number of different licenses you probably need to just share, right? That is also a, a big deal because some of the licenses, and I'm not a licensing expert, there are about 15 or 20 different major kinds of open source license. And some of them are all the way from the do whatever you want with it here, and that's fine. But some of them say, if you make changes to this library, you have to push the changes back into the open source. But, you know, how many people are respecting that license, right? Like they make a change to do what they want, but they don't open a PR, right? Yeah. It's a big deal. And on the legal and compliance side, they want to know that too. That's a common question if you're a startup is 
give me a list of all the software you used to build your software so that we can make sure you don't have anything in here that says this company, you know, now owns 10% of it because you use their their intelligence or whatever, their software in in my stack. Oh man. Well, and I'm I mean, almost all of them too just require, like to your point about the infotainment systems, that at a bare minimum, you're listing out, hey, we use this, so they're getting credit for, you know, the work that they've done, which they should. It just sounds like managing that kind of complexity, especially from a legal and compliance standpoint, sounds like a nightmare that I don't ever want to have to deal with. I'll let you know next time we go through an audit and I'll let you sit through that with us. I, I just literally asked you not to do that, please. I know, please but everybody needs to see how painful <laughs> it is at least once in their life. Absolutely. Well, that's why we got you on the line. So you can share that with the world. Um, oh, man. Well, uh, you know, jumping over to I'm curious because you shared a piece on scrum.org, which I thought was really interesting as well, which talked about kind of the development team's um, how they're uh, structured and how that may play into some of the complexities and the challenges, right? Because some teams may be only backend. Um, they rely on X team to provide, you know, the API team to provide API hooks. And those may have different dependencies that they have no idea exist because, you know, they, they only have that connection point um, via, you know, their workflow. Um, so I just, any takeaways from how do we get here? How is the org structure influence how some of this goes and how you can think about it? <laughs> the best way is to start over, but nobody can do that, right? Like It's like zero trust. Just break it all down, build it back up from the bottom, keeping this in mind. You really have to start from the very bottom to, to make this work. And going back and retooling it is nearly impossible. Because like you said, once you get technical debt built in and libraries that people like to use or whatever, removing those libraries is super hard. It's kind of like replacing the foundation on a house. You can do it, but it's not fun and you'll do nearly anything you can to not to not have to, to do that. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and it has a high chance of breaking things, right? Oh, yeah, it's going to break yeah. something and it's not going to be right. So that's why you want to you if at all possible you want to start early and have a good firm foundation on what you allow to be brought in from open source from outside right but the agile and the scrum methodology doesn't give a lot of credit to to people kind of stopping and thinking about this right they're like how fast can we can we get this out and I admit it too. I'm not a developer, but when I want to find something, I go and look for a gem or software somebody else has already written that I can pull in as a library and use just because it's it's super handy and super fast. But, I, you know, very rarely does anybody think about what does this library do? You know, who wrote the code? Is it maintained well? Those questions that you should ask that aren't great. But there are companies out there who are trying to help with like an open source library scorecard kind of thing, right? Or mm-hmm. To help help these companies know that said, okay, this, this library is allowed, this library isn't allowed. So some of the benefits, it seems to me, right? It's speed, you don't have to rewrite code, you can pull in um, these kind of specialized toolkits to achieve a specific task that you may or may not have experience in. I think the TensorFlow piece, right? Like most people are not very familiar in coding for <laughs> machine learning possibly or AI, right? And so you bring in these highly specialized skill sets that you may not necessarily need or have on staff. What are some of the ways to, I guess, uh, combat some of the challenges with using these kind of code bases you you really have to just make sure you understand what it does and how it's supported and who it was written for is also 
a big thing to understand. Like, what was the use case when this was designed? Uh, a great way to do that is if you're looking for open source software, look for startups that have have written it. Right, look for look for somebody kind of, if at all possible, for somebody in your vertical or kind of the same size, because they still probably have some of the same kind of restraints and want the same kind of performance you do. Right? Yeah. What what you don't want to do is like need a file processor software, and you find something at the University of Missouri written and open sourced, but it only does you know a million lines an hour, which is fine for the University of Missouri because they're academic and they don't need it, right? Like the speed isn't isn't super important there, but you need to do at least 5 million lines an hour in your processing, right? So you need to go and try to find somebody who has that same use case for the software as you do, or better yet, if you can't, when you rewrite it or you tweak that software, re-release it back out and say, hey, here was our use case, we needed more performance, so we switched out these libraries. And that's how open source software gets better. Yeah, and contribute back to the uh, yeah. the code base. Yeah, nice. What are some of the other considerations? Um, I know you've covered them throughout the course, but you know, if you were going to go pull in um, uh, some kind of external code and you aren't pushing for time, <laughs> you want to do your due diligence. What are what are the steps you'd take when you're looking at the code you want to pull in? I would see if there's any open vulnerabilities. I, I always am a big fan of going and looking at the GitHub issues and kind of seeing the kind of people you're, you're working with, like see how they respond in, in the issues and in the PRs. Because at the end of the day, these people become your quote unquote coworkers, right? Like you're using their software in your software. So if you're having an issue or something breaks and you want to you know, you need to ask them a question and either an issue or a GitHub PR. Yeah. You want to have somebody who at least looks semi-friendly and not like, you know, combative or, or dismissive in those in those PRs. So that guy in Nebraska is very responsive to the code he's been maintaining for fun since 03. He's probably a super nice Nebraska guy, right? He's like, they're like, oh, you need this to do this? Okay. And he stays up all night and he writes it for you, right? Versus... You know, the a tech bro who's like, dude, that's not even what this is used for. Like, well, get off my site, you know? <laughs> oh, man, I totally just saw a prototypical uh, tech bro when you were doing that. Um, what about uh, uh, the source of the code from, like, different languages? Does that pose some challenges, right? If uh, the guy's Croatian, for example, and uh, you're trying to chat with him, he's not very English native, something like that. For sure, you need to make sure, yeah, that that you can have those conversations or or even where this code comes from, right? Like, yeah, Croatia is not on any list, but like you can't use code from Iran if there's somebody really smart in Iran that has some great code on GitHub. It's probably not legal for a U.S. company to to put that in their stack because of import export laws, right? Yeah. Okay. It's stuff like that that make lawyers rich, and you know. <laughs> Security guys pull their hair out, right? Like, what do you mean we can't use this library because it comes from this country that we don't like this week? Like, yeah, I'm gonna have so now I have to go have that fight with my dev team. The layers of complexity are just staggering to this this challenge. Um, I guess that's a good segue. Like, what are some of the solutions to managing 
this issue. I know, um, you know, there's some built-in stuff for like GitHub, for example. You have some really good advice for like check doing some homework, right? Seeing like who worked on this and are they responsive and can you get a hold of them? Um, are there any other uh, capabilities that are kind of built in or that you would see as a baseline is necessary? I think having a good policy, a good written out policy that that states what what you need to have before you allow uh, a new gem or a new dependency to be brought into your stack is is at a minimum. Uh, some of the best companies I know have kind of like a, a library review committee, which sounds boring and it probably is, but it's you know four or five of their their senior developers. And somebody comes and says, hey, I need to use this library to do this. It's not in our stack yet. We want to to use it. And, and they can spend time and look at the and like use the wisdom of crowd to come to a consensus if, you know, we need to use it or if, or if, hey, no, like this is built in and you just need to do that. Because a lot of times it is, right? Like you pull in a library because you're not as good of a developer as you should be maybe. I've been guilty of that, bringing in a library to do something simple that, you know, four or five lines of code that I just couldn't write could do the same thing. But in terms of speed and stuff, bringing in 20,000 lines to someone else's code was the way I picked it. Hmm. Interesting. So the the Jedi Council of External Code Review. That sounds like a good process, but... Are there any um, kind of capabilities you think are necessary um, in built in like GitHub? I know they've been pushing on this a lot. Um, yeah. Java library, stuff like that. SCA, or, you need to run a software yeah. where an SCA, right? Like mm-hmm. it just tells you everything that's in your system and if it's up to date and if it has known vulnerabilities, right? Like it's very, very important to be able to keep on top of, of what makes up your stack. And then how do you go about addressing vulnerabilities Uh after you run that SCA process? It's not easy and your QA team has to test, right? Like it's it's regression testing most of the time because you have to say, here's what this library did. Here's what it changes. It shouldn't break anything. But as we all know, you don't know until you know. So you got to update it. If everything looks good, then you have to try some more testing, right? And then you can roll it out. It's not as easy as just updating everything and going, right? Like, that's how you know the difference between somebody who spent some time in, in software development and someone who's come from, you know, traditional VM management. Because just traditional VM, it's like, oh, there's a patch out. Just install it. What's the worst that can happen in rollback, right? Like, and expect a patch to be deployed in 48 hours, 96 hours or whatever. But when you get down to software development, updating one vulnerability can take a pair, like two developers, a full two-week sprint to, to walk through and to do that. And when that's 90% of your code, most companies have full-time teams just devoted to keeping their dependencies and their software up to date. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and why things like Apache struts and stuff like that can sit unpatched for so long, right? Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, just to summarize real quick, you know, it sounds like a good process is to, one, kind of identify some guidelines at the outset for your devs, right? So they can understand what generally is appropriate, what to look for that would be a bonus for pulling stuff in, things, red flags to look at, why you might not want to consider pulling in specific uh, external libraries into your code. And then from there, possibly having a nice review team that can sit out and their job is to look at, hey, do we need this? Can we do it in internally? Do we need to do this externally? Provide a little bit of counsel from the high level. Hopefully not 
bringing in legal teams into code review too often, and then uh, test QA check on the back end for the uh, the vulnerability management slash patching side of things. Does that sound about right? That's it. That's look, you're a professional now. You can go and, you can go and start start a job as a software you know software manager. Oh please no, please no. Uh, I got the Jerry Gamblin crash course. It's a hard problem to solve, and we we just touched on what it looks like in a normal day, right? All kinds of stuff, like what happens if somebody puts a backdoor into a super popular platform, right? Like like that's yeah. one of the things that people worry about. There's all these these gems and this stuff that like one day you wake up and it comes to find out that your favorite bad actor put a backdoor in the most popular Ruby gem, and it's been there for six months, and now every company that runs Ruby in the world is now owned, right? Because nobody spent the time to dig through all all the that code and to make sure that it was all legit. Wow! How often does something like that happen? Uh, we have not seen it on a top tier, like a top ten percent gem, but we see it all the time on on lower level gems that have a hundred, hundred and fifty installs. Right? Like with typo squatting is a big thing too. Like device is the big uh, Rails uh, authentication gem. Like somebody set up a fake one called revise and it, you know one little typo brings in code that works 99.9% the same as device but except with a backdoor yeah an added bonus of insecurity so it's kind of like url spoofing almost in a exactly. way exactly yeah. yeah interesting how does uh and just while we're starting to think of some of the future dev stuff um you know container serverless stuff like that does that change this process or what to think about it changes who owns it at the end of the day, when you're talking about serverless, you're talking about one of the big four cloud companies owning that infrastructure and building those, those servers. So you hope at some point that like, and you know they are, they're taking this very serious, making sure they're not bringing in, in bad software in. And then it does get down to more what you saw in 2010, where developers might write 50% of the code they're running because all the serverless software is being handled by someone else. Sounds like that might be a, a good way to go in the future as things start to develop out. Maybe. We'll see. Depends how much you want to tie yourself to, say, an Amazon, Google, Microsoft, yep. et cetera. Exactly. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, it's. I mean, that seems like a really good overview. Is there any other final thoughts uh, you wanted to give on the podcast? No, no. Thanks for having me. This has been great as always. Always. Okay, cool. Well, just a quick reminder that uh, I will link all of the articles, um, particularly the XKCD piece, but um, ours technical piece, the scrum.org. And then we also have a, a couple links for things like uh, GitHub, um, where they talk about uh, some of the dependencies and how to uh, uh, manage those within that environment. But in the interim, thanks, Jerry, for joining us and everyone have a nice day. Mm-hmm.